is from Acts chapter 13, and this can be found on page 1107 in the Pew Bibles. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So after they'd fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salami, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They travelled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for that's what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that's right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind, and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Poseidon Antioch, and on the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the Law and the Prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. This is the word of the Lord. It was at this point that um, Paul got up in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch and preached a, a powerful sermon. And because his audience was clearly ra- uh, largely Jewish, he focused on, on the Jewish stories from, from Abraham uh, right the way through to, to David. And then he jumped from the story of King David straight away to Jesus, who after all was descended from David. And he preached about Jesus' death and resurrection. And uh, then he went on to present them with uh, a challenge. A challenge, were they going to choose forgiveness um, and life, or were they going to choose death? It very much reminds me of some things that Simon Gilbo was saying here on Tuesday evening, if you were here. So that's, that's the sermon in the middle of this passage, and now Darren's going to read us the end of the story from later on in chapter 13. The next reading continues in Acts 13, and it is verse 42 to 52. 
As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who walked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak to the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honoured the word of the Lord, and all were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. A couple of lines from that hymn. Oh, let me hear thee speaking in accents clear and still. Lord, may that be true for us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. I wonder if you've ever wondered why the uh, book of Acts that we had read just now is actually called the Acts of the Apostles. Um, That title wasn't part of the original Greek. It was given by um, a man uh, called Irenaeus, who was Bishop of Lyon um, towards the end of the second century. Um, And uh, he was a great campaigner against a lot of the false teaching that was going on at the time that was undermining the Christian faith. Anyway, he called it the Acts of the Apostles. But ever since then, people have wondered whether that's really the best title for it. And the suggestion is that maybe it should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Um, I've got uh, quite a lot of sympathy with that view. Um, And uh, if you take, for example, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it goes like this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. One verse that, if you like, seems to summarise the whole of the book of Acts. Power from the Holy Spirit, witnesses all over the world. I like to imagine a little conversation between Jesus and his apostles. And Jesus says, the Holy Spirit is coming. And they reply, okay, So what will happen as a result? You will receive power. Power? What sort of power? Power to witness for Christ, to spread the good news about Jesus. Uh, And uh, where will this witnessing happen? Everywhere, wherever you go. It could start in Wanish, Blackheath, Shambly Green, even Cranley. 
wherever you live. But then it will spread to London, if you work in London, or maybe in Uganda or Burundi, for those of you who heard us on Tuesday evening. And some Christian friends of mine have even been to North Korea this year. I reckon in spiritual terms that has to be the ends of the earth. Now, our reading today, Acts chapter 13, was, a, was a, really a, a great turning point in this movement of the Holy Spirit in the early church. And it affected the way that the witnessing was done. And it all started in Antioch. Now, Antioch was a, a city in northern Syria, close to the Mediterranean coast. And it was actually the third largest city in the Roman Empire, after Rome and Alexandria. And it had a population of about half a million, which for those days was absolutely massive. And it had a big maritime trading port, uh, and it was the home for four Roman legions of soldiers. And excavations show that it was a, a, a place where witchcraft and the occult thrived a highly superstitious place. And there was also a thriving red light district. Now, Acts chapter 13 takes place just about 15 years after the um, martyrdom of Stephen when he was stoned to death. And that traumatic event prompted uh, uh, some terrific persecution of Christians in Palestine. And then a lot of the ordinary Christians left the area and moved out into the surrounding areas, and a lot of them went to Antioch. And I wonder if you can imagine them arriving in Antioch. How many Christians were living already in Antioch when they got there? The answer is none. Not a single one. Soon they were joined by some other Christians who came from Cyprus and North Africa, and they started to mix mainly with the Jewish community. And they started sharing their faith in Jesus Christ. But then, in Acts chapter 11, it says this. They began to speak to Greeks, that is, Gentiles, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And Luke goes on to tell us what happened next. The Lord's hand was with them, with these exiles from Palestine, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And in no time at all, the church in Antioch became bigger, bigger than the church even in Jerusalem. And then the two greatest evangelists and teachers of the day, Paul and Barnabas, joined them. The church was just going from strength to strength. Now, remarkable though that amazing growth in the Christian uh, population, if you like, was, that's not the turning point that I was talking about. I'll come to that in a minute. But then the Holy Spirit intervened again. And what really struck me as I read through this chapter the other day is that the Holy Spirit gets mentioned in Acts 13 uh, throughout the passage, um, uh, actually on four different occasions to be precise. And as Luke's aim in this book is to tell us what the Holy Spirit did in those early days, I reckoned that it would be good to explore those references to the Spirit, those four references, 
uh, as we go through this sermon this morning and to see if what we can learn as individuals and as a church from what Luke wrote. And the first one comes in the opening paragraph in verse 2. It seems to be referring to the church leadership in Antioch. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they'd fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The Holy Spirit said. Isn't that one of the most frustrating verses in the Bible? How did the Holy Spirit say to them that they were to set apart Barnabas and Saul? Wouldn't we love to know? But we're just not told. There's a book I read many years ago and I've valued ever since. It's called One in the Spirit by David Watson. And in it, he suggests four strands in how God leads and guides through the Holy Spirit. And the first one is through circumstances. God closes some doors and opens others. Our responsibility is to be sensitive to his leading. Sometimes this can involve pushing doors to see if there's an opportunity that God is giving to us and then to follow through those doors as they open. Number two, sometimes God guides us, the Holy Spirit guides us, through other Christians. The other night, Simon Gilbo told us how a Christian friend said to him, I think you should go to Burundi. And then as he prayed about it, he had a phone call from someone else who asked him, do you know anyone who wants to work in Burundi? Was that a coincidence? Or was it, as Simon put it, a God incidence? If we're convinced that God is calling us to a certain course of action, it's always wise to test that guidance by sharing it with other Christians, particularly uh, any that we respect as perhaps being older and wiser than us in the faith. And then thirdly, God speaks to us through the scriptures. After all, we believe that the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible And so surely he can take some part of it and speak to us through it uh, so that they become, the words that we read become an inescapable pointer to what God is wanting us to do. And then fourthly, God guides us through prayer. David Watson in his book points to Colossians chapter 3 verse 15 which says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And as we keep praying, keep on praying about a situation, so God will provide a sense of inner peace about which course of action we should be taking. And not an intellectual certainty, but a practical confidence about the way we should be going. So which of those four do we see here in Acts 13? Well, probably it was a combination of some of them. But there's one important thing to note. What the Holy Spirit said to those church leaders in Antioch was to do with the future direction of the church rather than the future direction of individual Christians. Though, of course, it had a very personal and individual effect upon the lives of Paul and Barnabas. Now, in a way, our gift day two weeks ago was a bit like this. 
we are longing that our mission will become more effective. And part of that is to make sure that it's possible to have gifted people working, we're thinking particularly amongst our children and young people. And we've been praying to God to guide us in this. It's soon become clear that local housing costs are a barrier to appointing someone like that. And if it's to be a a realistic possibility, our gift day was there to help us to see if we could raise the money to buy such a house. A bit like the first of David Watson's four strands, pushing at the doors to see if they open. Lord, should we be trying to buy a house for this purpose? There are still a lot of other doors that we're going to have to push before that dream becomes a reality. But for now, the signs are encouraging. The second reference to the Holy Spirit comes in verse 4. I'm going to read verse 3 again, as well as verse 4. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. Then we get a fascinating glimpse in these verses of the regular devotional life of those church leaders in Antioch. Fasting and praying surrounded their worship, waiting for the Spirit to give them the direction that they needed. And whether they'd been expecting something like this, we don't know. But to be told suddenly that two of their main leaders were wanted elsewhere, must have come as quite a shock to them. But it was that shock that led to the great turning point in the book of Acts that I've been hinting at. It's the first time that any church deliberately sent some of its members to take the gospel somewhere that had never heard about Jesus. Previously, the gospel had only spread as a a result of persecution. I wonder how we would feel if the Holy Spirit said that David Peters and Debbie were to be whisked off to Uganda for two years, or maybe even North Korea. And now, quickly, on to our third reference. Paul and Barnabas have made it to Cyprus, and they encounter some opposition from Elimas, the sorcerer, who seems to be contesting with them for the soul of Sergius Paulus, the governor, Verse 9. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimas and said, You are a child of the devil, an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Isn't it interesting? Elimas was full of deceit and trickery. Paul was full of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are two different ways that phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit, that phrase is used in Acts, and indeed, even in this chapter. There's one here in verse 13, and the other one comes right at the end of the chapter in verse 52. And that's the fourth of our references to the Holy Spirit. Paul and Barnabas, you see, had left Cyprus and taken a boat in a northwesterly direction until they reached what we might call mainland Turkey. 
Um, and then they went uh, about 100 miles inland to a small city, rather confusingly, called Antioch. In fact, there were 16 Antiochs in the ancient world, and that was all because of one man, a man called Seleucus, who um, was a Greek general, and he decided to honour his father, whose name was Antiochus, by naming lots of towns and cities after him. Um, They had a tough time, though, preaching in Pisidian Antioch. And in the end, they had to beat a hasty retreat uh, onto their, their next port of call. But then Luke, right at the end, adds those words. The disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. And I think that here in verse 52, the phrase full of the Spirit describes the general characteristic of the person. So, for example, uh, back in chapter 11, when Barnabas is first introduced to the readers, he's described as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And it signifies someone whose life is habitually governed and controlled by God's Spirit. Just as Barnabas was. And just as Jesus was too. When when Jesus uh, was baptised, it says that he, uh, as he came out of the water and was driven into the uh, desert to be tempted by the devil, that he was full of the Spirit. And when I think about lives perpetually governed by the Spirit, I think of a few Christians I have known over the years, over the years since I first came to faith. And their example makes me ambitious to be full of the Spirit in this sense. And two of the marks of people who are full of the Spirit would seem to be joy and peace. Paul and Barnabas, driven out by the persecution and the threats in Pisidian Antioch, were nevertheless full of joy as they moved on. The privilege of suffering for the Lord, perhaps. And they're also full of peace as they moved on to preach in other towns. Simon Gilbo on Tuesday told us of a man who once said to him, um, when they were in a scary situation, that he need not fear suffering or death. We are immortal until God calls us home. Very striking and scary words. And I guess you can only say something like that with real meaning if your whole life is marked out by the Holy Spirit and by peace. But there's another meaning for that phrase, full of the Holy Spirit, and that seems to be the emphasis in the Elimas story in Cyprus. It refers to the sudden inspiration of the moment. And while the first meaning refers to the continual state of a Christian who is walking with God, this one describes the special filling of the Spirit for a particular situation. No doubt the temporary blinding that came over Elimas was to persuade him that the power came from God. And notice once again that the Holy Spirit's power is for witnessing to Christ, driving forward the mission of God. As we see how Paul's words and actions and his witness in general result in faith for that governor, Sergius Paulus. Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit for this special opportunity, is equipped for a remarkable, for a, a, a remarkable situation.
And so is the filling of the Holy Spirit, this filling, uh, a one-off or something we should pray to be repeated? In that second sense, I'm sure it's something that we should pray for to be repeated. In uh, the epistle to the Ephesians, Paul says this, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And the the tense used in the Greek means not just once be filled, but go on and on being filled with the Holy Spirit. So how can we be filled with the Spirit? Jesus once explained it to his disciples. If you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Some people pray daily for the Holy Spirit to fill them and equip them for that day. But how will we know that we've been filled when we pray that prayer? Well, the answer is that we won't. Not until we have the trust to go out and behave as if we were filled. Then we'll discover that we have been filled by the Spirit, that God has equipped us for the task that he wants us to do. And let's remember that verse that summarises the whole of the book of Acts. You will receive power, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. So as we sit, let us pray together. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would so fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might be equipped for the work that you want us to do today, tomorrow, the rest of this week, or whenever. (coughs) Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.